Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Yes, you did. You hit the right button down there in the street. I know, I know. It's it's sometimes difficult. Sometimes you might panic being alone, out there in the gathering dark, among the shuffling figures of the evening. The Cubs fans, the frat boys heading for the sports bars. But you did. You jabbed the right buzzer. So, come in. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and when you do come in, you'll be safely ensconced in the nook, and you will settle in among friends for another Tales to Terrify. So come in and know that you are welcome. For the past few weeks, we have focused on long tales that terrify— the three-part, five-and-a-half-hour rendering of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, for example. The recent The Red Empress, which was part one of Mike Allen's The Blackfire Concerto. Last week, we heard Eugene Foster's novelette, Sinner, Baker, Fabulist Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman, Beast. Now, for me... The novella, novelette, long fiction story is precisely the ideal form for horror fiction. The dread may build slowly, insidiously, terrors arise, characters you've met and have gotten to know are dipped into the horror and finally overwhelmed by it, and that it ends and the reader is left with a lingering sense of meaning or meaninglessness, and perhaps... All are bathed in awe, wonder, and trepidation about the future. But 
Tonight, we are going to give you some short, sharp jabs. We will let the imps of the perverse poke you with their tridents. Tonight, we will feature a potpourri of the mad. Tonight, we will bring you eight, count them, eight short stories, the longest of which is eleven minutes, the shortest of which is four and a half minutes. Before we voyage forth, however, let me remind you to go and like us on Facebook. Help us turn that little virtual condominium into a nook away from the nook, an adjunct with images, sounds, videos pertinent to our weekly gatherings. We're currently edging toward 900 likers to date, and I'd love to see us at a 1,000 by the new year. We can do that, can't we? Yes, of course we can. And the other thing, of course, is to stop by the Tales to Terrify homepage at, where else, TalesToTerrify.com and stuff a few dollars, pounds, shekels, euros, et al. into the jar and help keep us going. It's important if you want to keep us in bandwidth, treats, and other such necessities that make the show possible. So... I urge you, go. We need you. But of course we do. And that is that. And now, lo and behold, it's time for fiction. Grab a drink, grab a snack, grab a chum and snuggle. We're going to do this a little differently this evening. There will be very little of me and a lot more story. I won't tell you a great deal about the authors or probably even less about the narrators. Where possible, I'll post their home pages and their blogs on the Tales website and on our Facebook page. And if that's not an incentive to go and like us and go to the home page, well, I just don't know what is. The procedures will be simple. There will be a brief bridge, our usual musical bridge, between each of the eight stories, and, where possible, I'll let each narrator introduce the story. Okay? Okay. Here is the schedule of events for the evening. Ahimsa Kirp's Mr. Potato Head will be narrated by Antoinette Bergen. P.D. Kasich's Santry will be narrated by Josie Babin. L.R. Bonehill has given us In the Garden, also narrated by Antoinette Bergen. We have Copper Smith's The Sweetest Kind of Chaos, narrated by Brian Esterson. Dennis M. Lane's Trapped will be narrated by Dennis M. Lane, the author. Jim Pyre's Binge is narrated by Logan Waterman. Chantal Boudreau's Little Sister, again narrated by Antoinette Bergen. And to wrap things up, Joe R. Lansdale's The Boy Who Became Invisible will be narrated by myself. Now, let me give you just a bit, a taste, a touch of information about our authors for the evening. First, Ahimsa Kirp describes himself as a peripatetic language mercenary and a speculative fiction writer who is fond of rambling hikes, eerie ruins, craft beer, and tofu tacos. And that's fun to say. 
He can be reached at... <laughs> well, I won't tell you. It's on the home page. P.D. Kasich, her friends know her as Trish, is among a select group of writer friends who have lain their weird and weary heads upon the cushions right here in the nook in years past. Trish has won more Stokers and other awards than should be legal. Now she's in theater. She's a playwright. We seem to have traded careers. To make contact with her, she blogs infrequently at... Uh, again, I will put that on the homepage at all. L.R. Bonehill says that he is a writer from the dark heart of England. His short fiction has been published by Dark Fuse, W.W. W. Norton, Strange Publications, and by Nikon. His work has appeared alongside authors such as Peter Straub, Gary Brownbeck, and Joyce Carol Oates. Good neighbors. He has stories forthcoming from This is Horror and, he says, Tonight on Tales to Terrify. Copper Smith. I know very little of Mr. Smith. He writes under a panoply of pen names, such as Copper Smith, under which moniker he writes what he calls tawdry crime fiction. Of himself, he says he is a confused Minnesotan. Of his fiction, he asks us to imagine a smash-up between Raymond Chandler's 1952 Buick and Chester Himes' 74 Cadillac. Dennis M. Lane writes poetry, fiction, et al. In 2013, he was a Risling Award nominee and winner. He has had two novels, his first and second, published this year also. His first, Talatu, was released in March. His second, The King's Jewel, was published just this past month. Both are young adult books. Jim Pyre grew up in Chicago and now lives in Mount Gilead, Ohio. He reads and writes and works a day job between. With Ralph Waldo Emerson, he says, he knows, quote, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us, unquote. He says he also knows there are places, places above and below, behind and beside, things just beyond the reach of peripheral vision, places that are inhabited, populated, filled with things, spooky things, creepy things, crawly things, shadow things. These are the things that find their ways into his fiction. Chantal Boudreau is a member of the Horror Writers Association. She writes and illustrates predominantly horror, dark fantasy, and fantasy. She has had several of her stories published in a variety of horror anthologies. Her first novel, Fervor, A Dystopian Tale, was released in March of 2011 by May-December Publications, followed by its sequels, Elevation and Transcendence. Magic University, the first in her fantasy series, Masters and Renegades, made its appearance in September of 2011, followed by the sequel, Casualties of War. And, finally, Joe R. Lansdale. Everyone knows Joe. He's the author of over 30 novels. More short stories than you could 
Shake a Stick At. His work has appeared in national anthologies, magazines, collections, as well as numerous foreign publications. He's written for comics, television, film, newspapers, internet sites. His work has been collected in 18 short story collections, and he has edited or co-edited over a dozen anthologies. He's received the Edgar Award, eight Bram Stoker Awards, the Horror Writers Association Lifetime Achievement Award, the British Fantasy Award, the Grinzani Cavour Prize for Literature, the Herodotus Historical Fiction Award, the Inkpot Award for Contributions to Science Fiction and Fantasy, and, and, and others. His novella, Baba Hotep, was adapted to film by Don Coscarelli, starring Bruce Campbell and Ozzie Davis. His story, Incident on and off a mountain road was adapted to film by Showtime's Masters of Horror. He is currently co-producing several films, among them The Bottoms, based on his Edgar Award-winning novel that will feature Bill Paxton and Brad Wyman, and The Drive-In with Greg Nicotero. And I cannot wait for that one. You can catch up with Champion Joe at a site that will be on our homepage. Okay. Now, settle back, listen to the first of our eight stories on tonight's Tales to Terrify. Mr. Potato Head by Ahimsa Kerp Suffer the demon failed for the final time. The demon goddess Kuzan was angry and banished him to the mortal plane until he claimed one hundred lives. Because the demon was a loud-mouthed bully, Kuzan added a twist. Each time Suffer killed, he transformed into something more innocuous than before. He'd had his true powers for his first kill, by kill fifty, was reduced to a rabid dog, and he'd made kill number ninety-eight as a hummingbird. That had been thirty years ago, as the mortals reckoned them. Suffer was stuck, one kill short of returning to his planar existence as an all-powerful cyclopean entity. Kuzan sensed his impotent rage and delighted in it, so she changed the rules just a tiny bit. Harry jumped into his new Volkswagen Fox and turned up the radio. Huey Lewis blasted through the hi-fi speakers. Harry scrambled for his new Rick Astley tape and popped it in as quickly as he could. That had been close. He couldn't stand Huey Lewis or the news. The tape player had come with the car, and it sounded amazing. Eight tracks had never sounded so good. He hummed along, driving through the dark, nearly empty streets, while on his way to visit Claire. She was cool. Different than the chicks he'd dated in college. She wasn't a hippie, for one thing. She had a kid for another, which was weird, but not as bad as he'd expected. Sometimes it was fun to play matchbox cars or light bright with the little guy. They'd been dating for two months now, and it was going well. He pulled up to Claire's house a few minutes later. Her car was on the street, but all the lights were off. Odd. It was after ten, but she knew he was coming over. He shrugged. She was probably watching TV. He walked up to the door and opened it without knocking. A recent liberty. He frowned as he realized that despite his best efforts, Huey Lewis was stuck in his head. It's hip to be square. He stepped in and immediately realized that something was wrong. The house smelled of sulfur and copper. It was dark, too. 
darker than Harry had ever seen. It was an act of darkness rather than a mere absence of light. The light from outside did not penetrate the barrier of dark that existed in the house. Claire, he called, taking one careful step into the house. Brian, there was no answer. Harry's hand reached for the light switch, but in the dark he could not find it. He could hear something, though. Something was dripping within that dark, hollow house. The hairs on the back of his neck stood up. Every part of Harry's soul told him to get out of the house. He could call the cops, or come back tomorrow, or do something other than this. He took another step in. The coppery smell grew more intense. His hand, still scrambling for the light switch, brushed against something sticky. He felt a warm breath on his neck as the dripping continued. The black darkness increased manifold. Harry was not sure if his eyes were closed or open. Drip, drip, drip. Whatever was dripping was falling into a puddle. Fighting the urge to scream, Harry turned and ran back to the door. But he could not find it. Nothing was there. It was too dark to see. He slammed into the wall, and suddenly, mercifully, there was the light switch. He flicked it on and blinked in the sudden cessation of darkness. The light was weak and seemed wrong, as though it knew it didn't belong. Harry was at the end of the hallway, looking into the living room. No one was there. Nothing was there. It seemed normal. Brian had left his Mr. Potato Head in the middle of the floor, right on the woven carpet Claire had brought back from Mexico. By coincidence, the toy's eyes were scrunched up, as though the light were blinding it too. Harry checked behind the couch and around the room as best he could. But whatever had been dripping was not in here. Harry checked the kitchen and the bathroom. Nothing was dripping in either, as far as he could tell. He checked Claire's room. No one was in there. There was no sign of a struggle or anything. His mind grasped for a plausible explanation for this. Where had she gone? Only two places were left, and one he didn't want to think about. He opened Brian's door. Nothing strange in here, except that Brian had left another Mr. Potato Head toy on his bed. The face on this one seemed angry. Frightfully angry. You're going to die, something whispered in Harry's mind. He slammed the door shut and returned to the living room. He smelled the tangy, coppery smell of blood, stronger than ever. He was shaking. Harry was out of options. He grabbed a flashlight from the top of the fridge and walked out the back door and down into the basement. The basement smelled of mold and rotting fruit, dust and death. It was warm, too, almost hot. Harry unbuttoned his top collar and shone the light around. It was warm, too. Almost hot. Harry unbuttoned his top collar and shone the light around. A voice that sounded of cold stone spoke in his head. Death. Death. Death, it said. Harry's mind countered with, I want a new drug. One that won't make me sick. One that won't make me crash my car or make me feel three feet thick. Damn that Huey Lewis. Harry really didn't want to die with that song in his head. To his surprise, Mr. Potato Head sat in the basement on the blue card table Claire sometimes brought up for parties. There was something on the table. Sodden lumps of red and pink. The ceiling above dripped blood. With a sudden sick shriek, Harry realized exactly what had happened to Claire and Brian. The potato's face was complete, utter evil. Blood was on its lips time to suffer, the rocky voice in his head whispered. His flashlight went out. Harry screamed and screamed. 
Later that night, Mr. Potato Head disappeared from the house. Forever. Centri Sleep Song Are you sure your eyes are closed? The magic won't work otherwise. She tried not to giggle and failed. That had been a joke between them for as long as she could remember. Longer, probably, if she thought about it. From childhood to the time she left for college, and even after that, during those first few months when she'd come back with the bad case of homesickness. He'd always ask her that question before he sang her to sleep. His voice was the magic, never the songs which would range from Irish ballads, her favorites, to classic Hank Snow, his. But whatever the song, all she'd have to do was close her eyes and his voice would carry her softly into dreams. I miss that. Hey, I'm working here, remember? Eyes and mouth shut, please. She curled her lips together, clamping them between her teeth and tasted the lipstick she'd applied that morning. He'd bought her her first grown-up tube the day she graduated middle school. Carnation pink. Then warned her not to use it all up kissing the boys. She blushed, and she laughed, and she smiled, remembering that. Good memory, he asked. Uh-huh. Shh. Sorry. Oops. He grunted in exasperation, and she squeezed her eyes tighter together, hoping he'd notice. Don't do that. You'll get wrinkles. She relaxed her face and felt something slip past her lashes. And don't do that either. She nodded, brushing the something away. All right, then. What'll it be? This time she didn't take the bait. Smiling, she lifted one shoulder, just like she always did, to let him know that whatever sleep song he sang would be fine with her. Hmm. Okay, how about... Ah, I know. And he began singing Molly Malone. It was her favorite song because it was sweet and sad and had a ghost in it. He always teased her about that, saying she was the only little girl he knew who not only wasn't afraid of ghosts, but wanted one as a pet. You remembered, she whispered and thought the song would cover her words. But he heard and stopped. I'll always remember, baby. Now hush. She lowered her chin as if in prayer and listened to his voice. A voice that took on the shape of whatever song it sang. Now it was a high, strong tenor, suitable for the old Irish tune. But if he had decided to sing a Dean Martin ballad, it would have dropped into a baritone range. For Elvis, he even did the drawl. His voice was magic, and she would miss it. They came before the song was over, and he stopped to accommodate them. 
She wished he hadn't, but her father was like that, always putting someone else's needs before his own. It's time. When she opened her eyes, he was smiling at her. Not his real smile, of course. They hadn't seen him in life, so they wouldn't know what it looked like. But a good smile, nonetheless. Are you all right? People had been asking her that for days, so the answer came easily. I'm fine. Thank you. She stood to give them room and watched while they closed the casket lid. He wasn't there. Not anymore. So it was easy to follow her father's casket down the long hall to the waiting hearse. In the Garden by L. R. Bonehill The consultant called it pregnancy material and told her to expect more, gave her a leaflet about a local support group and told her to go home and rest. Myra called it her baby and grieved. She touched a hand to where the life had once been. She hadn't felt it then. It was still too early. But she felt an undeniable and cold absence there now. Broken and hollow, it chilled her palm and fingertips. She held her hand against the small swell of her stomach and imagined there was still life inside her, still warmth and hope. The coldness spread through her like ice shifting in her stalling veins. She wanted to cry, but tears weren't enough. Ragged, silent sounds shook her. Afternoon sunlight filtered through the drawn curtains. Motes of dust skipped and fell in the shadows. The yellow wallpaper hurt her eyes, and her head thumped with a gray, creeping numbness. She lay for hours, curled on the bed and finding no comfort. She couldn't look at it again. Not yet. A sharp tang of blood clung to her fingers, and she could see dark stains in the gloom. Her mouth tasted bitter and metallic, like filaments of tarnished copper on her tongue. Eventually, she slept and found dreams of bones and decay. The world was unreal when she woke, dark and insubstantial. Shadows twitched in the corners of the room. Her whole body buzzed as if a thousand flies twisted inside her, and she was already dead and rotting from within. She was still cold, still empty. She fumbled in the bedside cabinet. Ray always kept a pack of camel lights in there and matchbooks from countless hotels and bars. There would be more once the conference finished at the weekend. The match hissed as it struck. Myra watched it burn, felt the heat as the flame bit at her fingers. She struck another and lit the cigarette, drawing the smoke down deeply. The tip glowed amber in the darkness. Myra held it above her stomach. It gave the pallor of her flesh a warm glow. She ground it down against her skin where it stung and burned. Teeth clenched, she relished the heat. She removed the cigarette and relit it with a fresh match, brought it down again. Her skin tingled and pricked sharply. The night outside was silent, and soon she slept again, a fitful, feverish sleep, with dreams of dirt 
and growth. Dawn woke her. Birds twittered in nearby trees. She was still cold, still empty. Her legs felt unsteady as she walked to the bathroom. She pulled the cord. The light was harsh and sterile. Her reflection shuddered in the mirror as she bent down to the floor. The blood-stained towel lay crumpled at the foot of the bath. She picked it up and unfurled the edges. A small, bloodied mass lay in the center, pulpy and unidentifiable. Myra reached out a finger and almost touched it. She shifted to kneel directly beneath the light and studied it closely. Head cocked, she turned the towel this way and that. A seed, she said eventually. Her voice was small and lost. She covered it again and headed down the stairs and towards the back door. Early morning light reached in through the frosted glass. The air was crisp and fresh with a slight chill on the breeze. Her garden flowered all year round, always had. Her fingers were green, not the red ingrained there now, like strange nicotine stains. The earth was damp with dew beneath her bare feet. The soil was rich and good as she dug deep with her hands. She could almost taste it. Her fingers snatched and clawed at the dirt as she made a hollow in the ground. Her stomach burned and itched in small circles of pain. She was still cold, still empty, but not for much longer, she thought. She took the seed from the towel. It felt soft and sticky in her hands. She planted it and compacted the earth around it. As the sun brought the first warmth to the day, Myra sat back and waited for her seed to grow. The sweetest kind of chaos. The love of my life, let's call her Alice, is a liar. She tells me she loves me and only me. She doesn't just say it, she sings it. She bellows it, filling the room with these lies like smoke from a spent cigarette. There is nobody else in the world for me. Nobody else, she coos. She is a liar. Because I know about her other love. I've seen them caress on the tall grass behind that mattress factory. I've seen the eyes they make at each other when they think no one is watching, when they think that all other beings have vanished into the backdrop. I've seen them share those conspiratorial whispers, those peeks into each other's secrets. This is no fling, no respite from the grind of their everyday lives. These two are in love, truly, madly, irreversibly. And that's why they will both die tonight. I sell household appliances, ovens, refrigerators, blenders. I'm good at it, but I don't kid myself about what it means in the grand scheme of things. I know it doesn't make sense that a guy like me, making just above minimum wage plus commission, would wind up with a siren like Alice, a long-limbed blonde with a pout seemingly tattooed to her flawless face. But I just accept my impossible luck and make the most of it. Mindy weighs me over to her register. Maybe she needs change or permission to switch brakes with somebody. It's always something, and it's always awkward. What is it, Mindy? Um... Me and some friends are going to see that Atlanta sequel after work, and I'm thinking if you'd want to join us, that would be okay? I don't think that would be such a good idea, I answer. Well, I mean as friends and what not. Nothing more, unless... Her eyes dropped to the floor. 
Mindy, it's over between us. As friends, even? I'm sorry. I walk to the break room, and I can hear Mindy breathe for the first time in several minutes. It's sad. We had something of a history, Mindy and I, but it's over now. Alice made sure of that. My heart was all Mindy's before Alice slipped between us and yanked me away into something I never before thought plausible. It wasn't a fair fight, really. Alice is a statuesque blonde with smoky eyes and a voice that invites you inside with every laugh, with every sigh, with everything. Mindy is short and stocky. She smokes too much and has the teeth to prove it. Alice kisses in short stabs, always promising more, always emptying her soul into yours, always the prettiest grin in the room, never lingering long enough to grow boring, always leaving you longing for another caress, another brush of her hair on your shoulder. Mindy tries too hard and has hair in places that make me uncomfortable. She wheezes in her sleep, and she complains about specks of toast left in the butter. Alice, I am eternally yours, in spite of it all. Because of it all, I am yours. Mindy, I need some tampons. Can you grab me some when you go out? It wasn't a fair fight. I'm poised to approach a tiny Asian woman who seems interested in a toaster oven when I'm interrupted by Brett. Hey, champ, I'm going to need you to take a time out after work for a little talk. No panic, just a quick thirty, maybe thirty-five of your time for a huddle. That work? He actually talks like that. I nod to him, then try to find out where the tiny Asian woman has wandered off to. I slump inside Brett's office after work. The walls in the small place are decorated with pictures of the vaguely famous, a local news anchor, a baseball announcer, a mascot from a fast food place, giving thumbs-up gestures with him. Brett is a thumbs-up kind of a guy. He talks like an unemployable football coach and has the most aggressive facial hair I've ever seen. He greets me with this. How's everything going on your side of the world? Good? Bad? Let's talk. Let's talk about team. Let's talk about teamwork. Everything is fine, I say when I have a chance. Fine. Really? Good fine or just okay fine? Because I'll tell you what's not fine. Yes? Sales. Sales are not fine. Your sales in particular. I tell you this as a friend. You're slipping. You're a home-run hitter, and you're taking singles, doubles, walks occasionally. I need you to swing for the fences. Swing for the fences. I got it. Anything else? He takes an exasperated breath and finds my eyes with his. Seriously, you feeling okay? You seem distracted, preoccupied, like your head's not in the game. I'm fine. More awkward eye contact brought to a merciful close with the ringing of his cell phone. He lifts a finger to say, Stay there, I'm not done with you yet, and seconds later he's counting down a till with his phone cupped to his ear. I don't move, until I spy a trophy on his desk behind him. It's bulky, solid, but with a base that can be gripped firmly. He hangs up, turns, and doesn't see me where I was standing. He never hears the sharp whistle of the trophy swinging to the back of his skull. With a loud clack, he stutters forward, drops to the hardwood floor, splayed like a snow angel. He belches out blood and something resembling a muffled hiccup, and that's it. I toss around papers from his desk and leave the side door, leading to the parking lot, lazily half-open on my way out. It will look random and money-driven, like a million other such incidents in this shitty neighborhood. It's nice to hear him quiet for the first time since I've known him, but this isn't a pleasure offing. This is more practical. I need the money for the trip. San Mateo is a moneyed suburb just outside of L.A., the kind that stays safely hidden away on the coast until something horrible or impossible happens there. 
This is where Alice's lover resides. From the moving bus it blurs into a streak of broad strokes like a Monet, but when the bus stops the place unfolds itself more like a Norman Rockwell, idyllic, warm, oppressively charming. As night falls I find a home in the bushes with plenty of time to ponder nothing and everything. My head is mostly filled with images of Alice, that reluctant half-smile that precedes every kiss, the toss of her hair and the shake of her shoulders that somehow passes for dancing, that elusive step back she would take at the wrong time, every time, when I wanted to hold her, taste her, keep her to myself. The machete isn't a tool designed for precision. I wouldn't recommend it for gallbladder surgery or peeling an avocado, but when you long for that sense of completion that comes from a lopped-off limb tumbling to the earth, you can't go wrong with eighteen inches of sharp Honduran steel. The machete gets things done. That's why I'm fearless now, motionless, ready to spring from the shadows and do what needs to be done. And the lovers seem ready as well, ready to taunt me with the fragrance of clandestine romance. They traipse hand in hand from the garden to the small pond by the back door. I catch them in mid-conversation, wooing away. I'm serious, Alice. I couldn't imagine wanting anybody's kisses but yours. It's just a game, a what-if, a hypothetical. And I could choose anybody? Anybody, past or present, dead or alive. Megan Fox, Marilyn Monroe, anybody. Anybody. And I get instant immunity? No questions asked. No, thanks. I've got all I need in you. Liar, but thanks. And you? A young Harrison Ford. Like Star Wars young or American Graffiti young? I'm joking. You know it's all about you. Jesus Christ. A young Jesus Christ like Carpenter days before the crucifixion? Will you just shut up and kiss me? He cradles her face and delivers this, gladly, from now until the end of time, every minute of every day. It would probably make me sick if I could feel anything right now. They turn, wide-eyed with panic, upon hearing a stir in the bushes, that I stumble unknowingly, that I clumsily tap a branch or place a foot wrong. Whatever the reason, the time to strike is now. I charge, machete raised, and the nightmare is cranked into motion, screams, flailing arms, faces twisting into rubbery masks of horror. It is the sweetest kind of chaos. It is victory. But the first swing sails past the intended target's head and lands nowhere. I stumble, giving them a head start, a line to the back door. They dash inside with a speed they never before felt necessary. But not speedy enough, they struggle to slam shut the door, and I beat it down with purpose, with anger. They are mine. First is the man, not planned that way, just his lousy luck. He catches a stab to his collarbone and meets the floor with a dull thud. I yank back my weapon and provide another slice to his abdomen, and why not? His reply, the longest, saddest squeal I've ever heard. Then nothing. And Alice has scrambled away. The house couldn't be quieter, placid even. Where could she be? The kitchen pantry? I rip the door open. Nope. Bathroom closet? Empty. Bedroom? Not a soul to be found. There's breathing down the hallway. One more closet to check. I kick it down. Hello, Alice. And she has a gun. Um, don't come near me? The snub revolver flutters in her hand like it might as well be a remote control or a Rubik's Cube. She's not ready to use it. Maybe she never will be. Don't come near me, she repeats, but it still sounds more like a question than a command. Do you love me, Alice? This shouldn't be a tough question, even after all the lies in this explosion we're in the middle of. But as she looks at me, she seems to find the eyes of a stranger. This is bad. So I repeat, 
Do you love me? No vocal reply, but she's nodding now. If you love me, give me the gun. She shakes her head no. She looks away for a second. That's all I need. The first swipe takes... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Takes off her right hand and sends the gun spinning to the floor. If it ever landed, I never heard it. All I see and hear is that mouth melting into a horrified wail. She boasts the bulging eyes of a comic strip character when she meets that second swing. Maybe I'm imagining it, but she seems liberated as she drops to the floor, like a prisoner pardoned from a nightmare. I almost want to join her. Almost. But right now there's a strange kind of beauty racing through my veins. Maybe it's the rawness of it all. The carved-up bodies of this love-hungry couple, their faces frozen in terror, their stillness. Nobody can tell me what I'm seeing and feeling and smelling isn't real. Not even those bastards at the clinic with their pseudo-psychological bullshit, telling me that Alice was just a voice on the radio, a pop singer residing a million miles away. Not my life, my love, my reason for being. But I know the truth. I heard those promises she floated my way with that lilting soprano. I heard those pledges of undying love. And nobody can take that away from me. Trapped by Dennis M. Lane Quentin Masterton III lay moaning in the darkness, his dreams full of betrayal and deceit. As he struggled towards wakefulness, images of his brother, angry and demanding, troubled him. Oberon Masterton had always been jealous, ever since he'd been old enough to understand that Quentin was the heir to the familial estate. He had always coveted the position and, later, had lusted after the wealth. But he had managed to conceal that fact from everyone, except his older brother. Only a year younger than Quentin, Oberon had ever been the more adventurous. It had been he who had ridiculed Quentin for being a coward, egging him on until he'd climbed the poplar tree, and 
it had been Oberon's smirking face that had been the last thing that Quentin had seen before waking up in the hospital bed when he'd fallen. While people could understand Quentin's fear of heights, they didn't know its origin. As they grew up, Oberon had continued to push his older brother to do things that he didn't want. Oberon had led the investigation of the family vault, nestled in the trees by the lake. Belittling Quentin, he had overridden his brother's objections as he stole the key to the great oak door of the family mausoleum. Quentin had been frightened by the knowledge that there were bodies inside, the long decomposed corpses of the very same ancestors who stared gravely down from the portraits in the green room. The sarcophagi had been too heavy to open. Oberon had tried, but the ornate stone lids were immovable. Even so, Quentin's dreams had been filled with shambling corpses and ravenous zombies for many a week afterwards. As the years passed, the lord of the manor, their father, grew older, his papery thin skin revealing blue veins as they circulated his turbid blood. And it became clear that he was not much longer for this world. And so Oberon began to scheme. He was always there, uncomplainingly helpful, never asking for anything. But the old man was a traditionalist. He could not imagine handing over the reins of power and control of the bank accounts to any but his firstborn. He had a vague sense of unease, that his youngest was after more than that allotted to second son. But he did nothing about it. Quentin would have to learn to look after himself. Oberon knew that he had to act, and act quickly. If his father died, with Quentin still in the frame, he would be left with just the scraps from the table. Which brings us to today. The sun rolled its way across a clear, cerulean sky, reminiscent of the long summer days of the boy's childhood. With a glint in his eye, Oberon had gone up to his brother. I miss those old days playing down by the lake. Quentin, surprised, had smiled. You know, I do too. It must be years. I wonder if the old swing is even there. Well, there's nothing going on today. Why don't we go and look? Quentin had no idea what his brother had planned for him. He was just glad that, finally, Oberon seemed to be over his jealousy. As they got close to the lake, a shadow flitted across Quentin's face. What's the matter? asked Oberon, knowing exactly what was troubling his brother. It's that damned mausoleum. It still gives me the shivers. Oh, come on, you're a grown man. You need to face your fear. Quentin wanted nothing to do with facing anything. He never had. But, as usual, Oberon knew exactly how to goad his brother. Come on, at least stand under the portico. That much can't hurt you. A dubious look on his face, Quentin sidled up to the door and turned. He saw Oberon picking up a spade that was leaning against the wall. Hey, what are you doing? His brother swung the spade and everything went black. Everything is still black, but now Quentin is awake. The air is dry and dusty and Quentin tries to sit up. As he does, he bangs his head on something hard and recoils, cursing. The moment that he falls back, Quentin realises... 
that he's lying on something. It feels like sticks. With terrible realisation, the terrified young man tentatively investigates one of the sticks with trembling fingers. He screams and begins to pound on the stone lid of the sarcophagus. He pounds against the unresisting stone above him until his hands are little more than throbbing lumps coated in blood. He screams until his tortured voice gives out, the cry is reduced to little more than croaks by exertion combined with the noisome dust. Finally, his body is no longer able to protest, and he falls back, spent. Quentin lies in the dark, willing his heart to slow down trying to convince himself that all he has to do is force his body to be calm, and then he can come up with a plan. Perhaps, if he approaches this rationally, he could work out a way to lever off the lid. Just as his heart is approaching its normal rhythm, there is a sound. What was that? Quentin whispers to himself. But there is no reply, no words just the rattling susurrus of breath being exhaled. No, I must be imagining it, reasons Quentin. And then he feels movement in the blackness. A bony hand grips his arm and Quentin screams. This time, the screaming lasts for much longer. Binge. I'm not the greatest guy. At least that's what my ex says. I party a little. But who doesn't want to buzz after putting in concrete slabs all day? She thought otherwise. At least that's what the divorce papers said. It's hard to imagine that after eight years and a beautiful daughter, it would all turn to ash. I still got to see my daughter once every two weeks, though, and that's after all the crap about supervised visitation. When you love a child, it's like nothing else on earth. We went to the zoo, the park, the little trolley, even the movies. Problem is being twice-a-month parent isn't always a trip to the amusement park. I only had so much time and so much money, and let me tell you, beer isn't cheap. I grew accustomed to her playing in her new little room in the apartment. Now that my house was gone, things needed to be downsized. She played alone in there most of the time because she didn't like the way I smelled. I should have known something was wrong then. She liked to keep her door closed a lot, especially when she stayed overnights. I had no problem with that. Little ladies need their privacy. It wasn't until I heard the voices that I started to worry. At first, I thought it was the TV, but she didn't play with it on. I'd go in to check on her and find nothing. She was just looking at the wall, sitting there doing nothing. I'd asked her what she was up to. She'd tell me she was playing with her friend. Kids have imaginary friends all the time. No big deal. We made a game out of it. She'd come over and play with her pretend friends. I'd drink and watch mine on TV. 
Things were great until her mother bought those damn paints. The girl had a knack, I'll tell you that. After a while, she knew her color wheel, even a little bit of perspective. Scholarships, here we come. Everything was fine. Better than fine. Great. She would go to a room and paint, and I'd get down to partying. Until I heard the voices again. It was the first day of spring. Things had just started to get green. Work started picking up again. I should have called and told her mother I was too tired for the visit, but I'd be damned if I'd let her use that against me. Friday, I was at the house promptly at 7, just like the court orders said. The kid and I were at my place at 7.30. No problems. Imaginary friends for everybody. It was about 9 when I heard the voices again. I was walking past her room to the toilet, and it was in her room, clear as day. It was a boy's voice, too. What's a father supposed to do? I stormed in, ready to catch the little bastard, and I saw a little red door. It was perfect, except for its size. She'd painted it on the wall, the same damn wall she would sit and stare at. What can I say? It freaked me out. I got mad, mad at her, mad at the divorce, mad at the whole damn thing. Things get fuzzy then. I remember yelling, her crying, me needing to get rid of the damn door that was at the root of it all. I threw a beer at it. It hit with a pop and exploded. I wiped the mess off with my hand and then my shirt. Then when it was gone, all that was left was a big red stain. There was more yelling. Finally, the quiet of a post-adrenaline haze. It was hours later on the couch when things went crazy. I woke up. Why, I don't know. My head throbbed and my mouth felt full of broken glass. I must have fallen asleep, but I didn't know for how long. It was dark, though, and only the flickering light from the TV kept the room from total blackness. That's when I saw her. My angel. She had red paint all over her hands, her face. Daddy, why did you do it? I can't put the door back, and now he's lost. He can't go home. It was standing behind her its head attached to its body as if by ribbons, its arms nothing more than string like some creeping, dancing nightmare from a child's mind. I felt an old, sickeningly sweet taste rising from the pit of my stomach as I tried to focus on it, how it danced behind her, the smile it had on its face. I did what only a father in my condition could do. I ran to her, stumbled, slipped on something, that's where they found me. It wasn't a week like the newspaper said. I mean, how could it be? I had to bring her back by Monday. How they found the body in her room, I can't say. I only remember that thing behind her. The way it shimmied and swayed. They said a lot of bad things about me at the trial. I'm beyond all that. Things should be better now. They don't let me drink in here. Little Sister by Chantal Boudreaux 
I'm glad it's morning. It's starting to get cold once the sun goes down, and I really wanted to crawl into the car last night, even with the bad smell there. It doesn't stink as much when it's cold, but Dad's still there in the driver's seat, and I don't like to look at him. It scares me and gives me bad dreams, when I can fall asleep. The only time I can make myself climb in is when it's raining, or it's time to take care of Jill. Otherwise, I stay outside, here in the woods with Mom. It's not so bad when the sun comes up. It's early September, so most of the chill is at night, even though yesterday morning I could see my breath in little puffs of steam. They'll come for us soon, though, when school starts and we're not there, and I guess that's what really matters. They might not miss me right away, and Jill's still too little for school, but they'll miss Mom and Dad. I stopped calling them Mommy and Daddy after my first year in school. The other kids said only babies do that. Anyway, they'll be missed when they don't show up when school starts, because they are school teachers. That's also why they probably aren't looking for us yet. People know we went away somewhere else for the end of summer vacation. I don't know if my mom and dad actually told anybody that we would be back this soon. We were coming back with more than a week to go before the first day of class. Mom wanted to be sure that we had time to do things like go school shopping for clothes and supplies. I guess that doesn't matter much now, and I'll have to pick out my own things when they find us. Today seems to be warming so that it's more summery than fall. It hasn't rained in a couple of days, so the ground is dry. I like those days best. I can avoid the car almost completely while I pick berries and refill Jill's cup from the river. When I've done my chores for the day, I usually hang out with Mom. Maybe it's because she's in the open air rather than stuck inside the car. Maybe it's because she's pretty cold from being frosted over for a couple of mornings and doesn't give off as much stink like stuff in the fridge. Anyway, she doesn't smell as bad as Dad, and I don't mind getting closer. I try not to look at her when I do. Going through the windshield smashed up her face pretty good, and so her cheeks, mouth, and forehead are all bloody, and her eyes are open and staring. She had taken her seatbelt off to reach for something that Jill had dropped when the accident happened. I don't blame Jill, though. She's mostly still just a baby, and she fusses without thinking. She didn't mean for things to happen the way that they did, just like Dad didn't mean to go off of the road and roll the car down the hill. When the sunshine has been really nice... I lie down in the grass a few feet away from Mom, and I pretend we're lying in our backyard, watching the clouds like we've done a million times before. We'd peek through the branches into the big blue sky and call out what we saw. It always made me giggle. Bunny, I call and point. Mom doesn't answer the way she would have, but I feel a little better just having her around. That will change when they find us, but for now I'll keep on pretending and it won't bother her. I get up again after a few more clouds starting to get tired of this game. Some of the leaves have fallen to the ground around her. Just a few, but I like the way they crunch under my feet, so I dance around her. She would have laughed if she could have. She liked crunching the leaves, too. She would smile with all of her teeth, too. A big grin, white and shiny. I can see her teeth now if I look, but that's because the skin is ripped away in places, and some of her teeth are broken. It's not the same. I flop back down on the grass once I'm out of breath from skipping and jumping, and I look at the berries that I picked for me and Jill. I pop a few in my mouth and enjoy their juicy sweetness. My tummy would have grumbled when I did this a couple of days ago. That was when the snack bag had run out, and now we just have the berries. They usually leave my belly pretty empty. My stomach hurt and growled a lot at first, but then I got used to having only the few berries and it got quiet again. It's kind of like my insides went to sleep. 
I'm sure that they'll find us before we starve, but we'll be pretty hungry until then. I figure out how many of the berries is about half, because I need to share with Jill. Mom and Dad would have told me to, if they still could, and I don't want to be a bad girl. I have to take care of my little sister, since they can't. Pushing the berries to one side, I get Jill's cup. I know the water from the river isn't tap water, but it is running water, and there's a better chance that it's good because of that. I wish I could boil it, but I'm not allowed to play with fire, and I don't have any matches. Dad taught me a lot about surviving in the woods when he used to take me camping. I loved camping, and this is a little bit like camping, but without the tent. He knew a lot about nature because he was a science teacher. Sometimes he would tease Mom that she wasn't a real teacher because she taught art instead. She would get mad at him and smack him in the arm, but she wasn't that mad because they usually ended up laughing. I like science, and I liked it when Dad talked about science stuff, especially the animals. I love animals. He told me all about Pavlov's dogs and Schrodinger's cat and Ham, the chimp astronaut. Mom didn't like it when he talked about those things and said that he better stop before he got to rats and rabbits. She said science could be cruel to animals. Dad would point out that Schrodinger's cat was only a theory, that they didn't do anything to a real cat, and then he would ask Mom if he needed to remind her of some of the things that had been done to animals in the name of art. Mom's face turned bright red and she stomped off. I hated it when they argued, but I guess they won't be arguing anymore. Once the cup is full, I have to do my other chore and take care of Jill, my little sister. I put the berries in the bowl that she used to keep her dry cereal in, the one with handles, and climb into the car next to Dad. I almost forget to take a deep breath first. I made that mistake yesterday and it was really yucky, especially with all the flies in there. It's not Dad's fault. Everything stinks when it's dead. The car is really dark and I can't see into the back where Jill is strapped into her car seat. I can still see Dad in the front, though. He didn't go flying through the windshield like Mom did. He still has his seatbelt on, and there's a big puffy airbag there, too. That was supposed to help in an accident, but it didn't work. It stopped him from smashing his head and face, but it didn't stop the tree branch from coming through the window, the one sticking through the place where his eye used to be. I'm doing more science stuff, Dad, I tell him as I tie the handles of the sippy cup and the bowl to the shoelace. The shoelace is tied to a stick I found. I've been able to tie my own shoes since I was four. Mom said I made her proud. The stink makes me want to throw up, but I have to finish what I'm doing. It's important. I lower the cup and bowl into the dark of the back seat like a fishing hook. Then I rest the stick against the front seat so that it stands up, and I climb out again. That's when I finally get to take another deep breath. I have to do this every day. I have to give Jill her share of the berries that I pick, whenever I can find them. The cup leaks a little, too, so it would be empty each time I pull it back, if she drank any or not. I sit on the grass again, and the urge is there to open the back door and peek in, since I don't know what I'll find, but I won't let myself. When the accident happened, when Dad swerved to miss a moose, my booster seat didn't work properly. It was too loose, I think, and I woke up outside of the car after the accident, just like Mom. But I wasn't dead. Not like Mom and Dad. I could see them and knew that for a fact. I couldn't say they might be alive because I was very sure that they weren't. But I couldn't see Jill. There was still a chance with her. I suppose in some ways it might be easier if I tried climbing up the steep hill to the road and go looking for help. 
or if I just opened that back door instead of waiting for them to find us and see for myself. If she's dead and I find that out for sure, I could keep all the berries instead of sharing, or I could make that climb and find someone who'll take care of me. But I have a problem with that. You see, as long as I wait, as long as I make this last, I can keep lying in the grass and staring at the clouds with Mom, and I can keep talking about science stuff with Dad, and no one can take those things away from me. And as long as I wait, and I don't look in that back seat, there is just as much of a chance that my little sister Jill is alive back there in the dark where I can't see her. Mom and Dad are gone for sure, and she's all that I have left. As long as I don't look, she's still my little sister. As long as I don't look, she's both dead and alive, just like Schrodinger's cat. The Boy Who Became Invisible by Joe R. Lansdale The place where I grew up was a little town called Marvel Creek. Not much happened there that's well remembered by anyone outside of the town, but things went on. And what I'm aware of now is how much things really don't change. We just know more than we used to because there are more of us, and and we have easier ways to communicate excitement and misery than back in the old days. Marvel Creek was nestled along the edge of the Sabine River, which is not a wide river, and as rivers go, not that deep, except in rare spots. But it is a long river, and it winds all through East Texas. Back then there were more trees than now, and where wild animals ran, concrete and houses shined bright in the sunlight. Our little school wasn't much, and I hated going. I liked staying home and reading books I wanted to read, and running the then considerable woods and fishing the creeks for crawdads. Summers and afternoons and weekends, I did that with my friend Jesse. I knew Jesse's parents lived well, differently than we did. And though we didn't have money and would probably have been called poor by the standards of the early 60s, Jesse's family still lived out in a farm where they used an outhouse and plowed with mules, raised most of the food they ate, drew water from a well, but curiously had, had electricity and a big, tall TV antenna that sprouted beside their house and could be adjusted for better reception by just reaching through the living room window and turning it with a twist of the hands. <laughs> Jesse's dad was quick to use the razor strap on Jesse's butt and back for things things my parents would have thought unimportant, or at worst, uh, an offense that required words, not blows. Jesse and I liked to play Tarzan, and we took turns at it until we finally both decided to be Tarzan and ended up being Tarzan twins. It was a great mythology we created, and we ran the woods and climbed trees, and on Saturday we watched Jungle Theater at my house, which showed, if we were lucky, Tarzan or Jungle Jim movies, and, if not so lucky, Bamba movies. About fifth grade, there was a shift in dynamics. Jesse's poverty began to be an issue for for some of the kids at school. He, he brought his lunch in a sack since he couldn't afford the cafeteria. And all his clothes came from the Salvation Army. He arrived at history class one morning wearing socks with big S's on them. 
which stood nothing related to him, they immediately became the target of James Williford and Ronnie Kem. They made a remark about how the S stood for sardines, which would account for how Jesse smelled. And, sadly, I remember thinking at that age that was a pretty funny crack, until I looked at Jesse's slack white face and saw him tremble beneath that patched Salvation Army shirt. Our teacher came in then, Mr. Waters, and he caught part of the conversation. He said, "'Those are nice socks you got there, Jesse. Not many people can have monogram socks. It is a sign of sophistication, something a few around here lack.' It was a nice try, but but I think it only made Jesse feel all the more miserable, and he put his head down on his desk and didn't lift it the entire class. And Mr. Waters didn't say a word to him. When class was over, Jesse was up and out, and as I was leaving, Mr. Waters caught me by the arm. I saw you laughing when I came in. You've been that boy's friend since the two of you were knee-high to a legless grasshopper. Well, I didn't mean to, I said. I didn't think. Yeah, yeah, we ought to. That hit me pretty hard, but I'm ashamed to say not hard enough. I don't know when it happened, but it got so that when Jesse came over, I, f I found things to do, homework, some chores around the house, which, which, which was silly, because unlike Jesse, I didn't really have any chores. In time, he quit stopping by, and I would see him in the, in the halls at school, and we'd nod to each other, but seldom speak. The relentless picking and nagging from James and Ronnie continued, and as, as they became interested in girls, it increased. And Marilyn Townsend didn't help either. She was a lovely young thing and as cruel as they were. One day, Jesse surprised us by coming to the cafeteria with his sack lunch. He usually ate outside on one of the stoops, but he came in this day and sat at a table by himself, and, and when Marilyn went by, he watched her, and when she came back with her tray, he stood up and he smiled politely, asked if she would like to sit with him. <laughs> she laughed. I remember that laugh to this day. It was as cold as a knife blade in the back, easily as sharp. I saw Jessie's face drain until it was white. She went on by laughing, not even saying a word, just laughing. And pretty soon, everyone in the place was laughing. And Marilyn came by me, and she looked at me, and heaven help me. I saw those eyes of hers and those lips, and whatever made all the other boys jump did the same to me. And I laughed. Jesse gathered up his sack, and he went out. It was at this point that James and Ronnie came up with a new approach. They decided to treat Jesse as if he were a ghost, as if he were invisible. We were expected to do the same, so as not to be mean to Jesse, but being careful not to burn my bridges with the in-crowd, I avoided him altogether. But there were times here and there when I, I would see him walking down the hall and on the rare occasions when he spoke. Students pretended not to hear him, or James would respond with some remark like, Hey, do you hear a duck quacking? And when Jesse spoke to me, if no one was looking, I would nod. This went on into the ninth grade, and it became such a habit 
It was as if Jesse didn't exist, as if he really were invisible. I almost forgot about him, though. I, I did note in math class one day there were stripes of blood across his back, seeping through his old worn shirt as his father in the razor strap. Jesse had nowhere to turn. One afternoon, I was in the cafeteria, just about to get in line, when Jesse came in carrying his sack. It was the first time he'd been there since the incident with Marilyn some years before. I saw him come in, his head slightly down, walking as if on a mission. He came near me for the first time in a long time. For no reason I can explain, I said, Hi, Jesse. He looked up at me, surprised, and nodded the way I did to him in the hall and kept walking. There was a table in the center of the cafeteria. That was the table James and Ronnie and Marilyn had claimed. And as Jesse came closer for the first time in a long time, they really saw him. Maybe it was because they were surprised to see him in his paper sack in a place he hadn't been in ages. Or maybe they sensed something. Jesse pulled a small revolver from his sack, and before anyone knew what was happening, he fired three times, knocking all three of them to the floor. Well, the place went nuts, people running in all directions. Me, I froze. Then, like a soldier, he wheeled and marched back my way. As he passed me, he turned his head, smiled, said, Hey, Hap. And then he was out the door. I wasn't thinking clearly because I turned and went out in the hall behind him, and the history teacher, Mr. Waters, saw him with the gun. He said something, and the gun went snap again, and Waters went down. Jesse walked all the way to the double front door, which was flung wide open at that time of day, stepped out into the light and lifted the revolver. I heard it pop, and I saw his head jump, and he went down. My knees went out from under me, and I, I sat down right there in the hall, unable to move. When they went out to tell his parents what had happened to him, uh, that Marilyn was disfigured, Ronnie wounded, and James and Mr. Waters were dead, they discovered them in bed where Jesse had shot them in their sleep. The razor strap lay across them like a dead snake. have it. Compressed gems of character, story, mood, terror. You know, while I said earlier that long-form storytelling was my ideal for horror fiction, I hope you did not think I was denigrating the form. No, no. I was saying only that I can't do it. All praise to those who can. The Best in Class contains all the elements I mentioned, cared-for characters, 
pace, ascending terror and appropriate denouement all compressed into a few deft taps of the fingers. Tonight's authors have done it with style and economy. Ah, well. Thank you all. And thank you, you narrators, you. Let me give you a few bits of information about all of them. Antoinette Bergen did yeoman service tonight, reading Mr. Potato Head, In the Garden, and Little Sister. Of herself, Antoinette says, she is twisted and dark, sarcastic, pessimistic, weird, demented, all of which apparently combine to make a person absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate, and I love that title, and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter at, at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. That's on the Tales to Terrify homepage. By day, Josie Babin, who read P.D. Kasich's Santry, is a biologist working in medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great San Diego outdoors, she's at home with her three loving companions, two feline, one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature, scientific works, and a few video game boxes. Cooper Smith's The Sweetest Kind of Chaos was narrated by Brian Esterson. Brian was born in Los Angeles and spent his childhood shuttling between Southern California and Phoenix, where he now lives. He says he prefers a good story, well-told, and eschews literary fiction in favor of genre writing, mainly speculative fiction and police procedurals. Dennis M. Lane read his story, Trapped. Logan Waterman was the narrator of Jim Pyre's Binge. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He currently works tangentially for the legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts, and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes someday to make a bit of money from voice acting and narration. And Joe Lansdale's The Boy Who Became Invisible was read by a person who keeps trying to make himself sound like Joe Lansdale when he reads Joe Lansdale. So thank you, Cher, for asking me to read it. Once again, thanks to all who participated in tonight's short-form extravaganza. And that will be that, children of the night. I hope you've enjoyed this short and flash fiction show. Let us know. Stop by the Tales to Terrify Facebook page and give voice to your notions. Just don't shout, please. Keep your caps lock key relaxed. Oh, before you go... Our best to our co-editor, Miss Cher Eves, now on the mend, from an incommunicado week in the heart of the Kentucky medical establishment. The best to you, Miss Cher. So, we have given you a lot to inform your walk home tonight, haven't we? Ghosts, Schrodinger's sister, 
damaged people and other things, things that might bump you in the night. I will say, if you were nervous about the street near the nook when you arrived, well, going home will be even more fun, yes? You'll make it. Your brain may be buzzing, but a dollop of warm milk and a few kind words with your cat, dog, or whatever beast you keep at home, and you'll be just chock-full of nothing but pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.